The Gist is brought to you by Slack. Slack brings all your communications at work into one place. Create a new team right now at slack.com slash gist, and you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. That's slack.com slash gist. And by Texture, the mobile app that gives you full access to more than 150 of the world's most popular magazines anytime using your phone or tablet. Read Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more from the back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com slash gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, March 29th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Campaign manager Corey Lewandowski has been charged with battery. Oh, wait, I didn't say whose campaign. Come on. Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski charged with battery for steering aside, forcibly steering aside a Breitbart campaign reporter so as to prevent her from questioning Donald Trump. Now, Florida law says the offense of battery occurs when a person actually and intentionally touches or strikes another person against the will of the other. So there you go. The detective in the case wrote it up like this. Lewandowski grabbed the reporter's left arm with his right hand, causing her to turn and step back. Video evidence says so. Trump denies it via tweets. Now, there are a lot of stories about raucous Trump rallies. Seth Stevenson of Slate went inside a Trump rally, talked about how scared he felt, quite frankly, as a reporter. I, too, have covered rallies, not Trump rallies, but raucous campaign events. And although Trump seems to be of a different and scarier quality, this isn't unknown in other presidential campaigns. I take you back to 2004, and the controversial figure at the center of this rally was Howard Dean. It was right after the Iowa caucuses. He was in New Hampshire, neighboring state from Vermont, and he, has, he had filled this large theater in Manchester. As he was giving his speech, a protester interrupted him, and he was quickly taken away by security. Then another protester interrupted him. Now, who's protesting Howard Dean? Well, this is a fascinatingly undercovered aspect of most political campaigns. Lyndon LaRouche's supporters, henchmen, whatever you want to call it, they just mobilize and they flood the zone in a lot of campaigns. And the media gives them no attention, which I think probably limits the amount of mischief they could cause. But this wasn't mischief. This was getting really annoying. So after the second or third interruption, another protester, a disruptive person, makes himself known and boom! Out of the blue, he's tackled, he's taken down by a short, rumpled figure, a figure I knew, a figure that you knew also. The protester is then gathered up by police forces or security, and I see the glasses all askew of the man who took him down, and that man's name was future Minnesota Senator Al Franken, who has a wrestling background and used it to take down a protester at a Howard Dean rally. Rough stuff should not happen, but it does. And of course, a reporter is not a wacky protester. And the most important difference is, I think, in the case of Donald Trump, it's not the wackadoo protester who's interrupting the thoughts of the candidate. It's more like the wackadoo candidate not wanting to be interrupted by a reporter. The call is coming from inside the house. On today's show, I spiel about a potential terrorism nightmare that turns into a almost hilarious hijacking. But first, the hacked iPhone. The FBI has gotten into the San Bernardino shooter's iPhone, but what are they looking to learn? So I think the best tech innovations fall in one of three categories. Things we never knew we needed. What, Twitter, that doesn't make sense? And all of a sudden, hey, that makes sense. Things we thought we needed, 
but just perfect it. I think Instagram, who doesn't like sharing photos, and things that we knew we needed, but we just couldn't quite crack the code. So we have email, we have instant messaging, but there's no one great system to put, say, a whole office or a whole team on one instant message page, but also have it organized and also have it not inundate them until now. Slack. Slate uses Slack. In fact, I'm a little offended. I'm going to get to that in a second. Slack wants to make your life simpler, more pleasant, and more productive. It's a messaging app for teams. It brings all your communications into one place, and it integrates it with tools and services that you use every day. They threw a couple of stats at me, like they surveyed repeat customers, and they found that there was a 32% productivity increase and a 48.6% reduction in internal email. That's true. I see that absolutely. Much fewer emails. Now, here's why I'm a little offended. They list their customers. Airbnb, NASA, AOL, BuzzFeed, blah, 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 blah. I'll get to the S's. Samsung, Spotify, Salesforce, Zappos. Hey, did you notice no Slate? But Slate uses Slack. And I got to say, to great effect, the people in the office really love Slack. So visit slack.com slash gist to create a new team and you will get $100 in credit when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. I think of all the codes I'd ever given out, I think 100 might be the richest. So that's slack.com slash gist for this offer of $100 in credit if you upgrade to paid. The cell phone of San Bernardino killer Sayed Farouk has been hacked, not by Apple, but by an unnamed outsider. Though this story has turned into one of privacy and corporate ethics and government protocols, it is at its heart a criminal investigation. So let's revisit where we stand on the story and the investigation of the San Bernardino, his wife, and if you remember, there was an accomplice. So joining me now is Joel Rubin. He's a reporter for the LA Times. He covers the federal courts and agencies. Hello, Joel. How you doing, Mike? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's put aside the legal, ethical issues. Was there an answer that the government was waiting for that they think this cell phone maybe will provide for them? That's part of the head-scratcher of this whole case, is that they more or less know the story of what happened. Uh, they know the, the who of it. They know the where, the when. They have some strong suspicions of, of the why. And so the idea that this phone that has been the subject of so much so much hand-wringing would answer a big question has never really been uh, something that the FBI has, has said they, they hope it, it, you know, it, it will have some, some great information in it. That said, the FBI agents have made the, the public stand that you know, they uh, owe it to the victims of the attack to track down every possible lead and to do as thorough an investigation as they can and that here is this phone that was found in the car of the main culprit of this uh, terrible killing. And um, let's get into it to see if, in fact, it has any useful information. Maybe there's uh, some contact information or messages with somebody who will point to there being another accomplice, or maybe there's some information about what motivated them to, to do this terrible crime. Okay, well, let's go over it. Right now, do they subscribe to the theory that it was essentially a, a lone wolf radicalized on his own, taking this into his own hands? That's my understanding. I mean, the, the wife was involved. We, we have Syed Rizwan Farouk, who was thought to be the, the, you know, the main perpetrator, but his wife, Tashfeen Malik, they were living in uh, San Bernardino area for many years and um, you know, didn't raise suspicion amongst friends and family. 
but certainly something happened where um, you know, authorities believe they became radicalized either on their own or through, uh, through uh, outside forces working on them. That said, there's still a lot of questions about you know, what motivated them and, and how it is they became radicalized to the point that they were willing and able to carry out such a, such a terrible attack. So the questions remain, you know, was there some ideological person or force that they were looking to, or were they simply just on their own and uh, got to the point where they were looking to, to make some twisted, terrible statement as they did? And what about the how of it? Is there any question about how they got their guns, how they concocted their plan? No, the FBI has been pretty successful about putting all that together. Uh, that brings in the sort of third outlier in this case, a guy named Enrique Marquez Jr., who's, uh, how do we say it, his appearance in court gave, gave the, uh, the appearance that he's a bit of a sad sap who doesn't really necessarily know what he's gotten himself into. He's a guy that became friends with Farouk over the years. They were neighbors and had a mutual um, like of tinkering on cars and spent long days together in the backyard working on cars. But Enrique made the terrible decision of buying two uh, uh, weapons for Farouk and then handing them over, which is a violation of federal gun laws, and now is facing federal charges of aiding and abetting a terrorist because of uh, his decision. Was there any reason why Farouk couldn't have done it himself, or was it just more the FBI and agencies think to uh, not arouse suspicion? Yeah, I think the, the assumption is that they were trying to keep a low profile, and the fact that he had some dubious immigration status with his wife, that he didn't want to draw any attention to that, and so that they were looking for somebody to uh, to buy the guns for them. And this third person, this Enrique Marquez Jr., you know, ne'er-do-well guy who hung around in a bar and maybe was thrown some odd jobs out of pity. I think I read a story where they described him as being a little bit like a puppy dog. There's no theory that, like, as you said, an unfortunate decision, no theory that he had any inkling of what was going on. You know, the charging documents don't indicate anything like that. Certainly no indication that he knew what was going on in this attack, that this attack was coming. But he and Farouk are accused of plotting out a very detailed attack that they ultimately did not carry out a few years prior that he was well aware of and was involved uh, allegedly in, in planning, was going to target a local community college, and then they were going to take up positions on a local highway and target cars. And and so it is, it is hard for Marquez to, to claim that he didn't know what uh, sort of thoughts were running around in in, uh, in Farouk's mind. Okay, so hapless, but not a hapless innocent if uh, the charges are to, or at least the allegations are to be believed. So in the beginning of this interview, you talked about they know the who, the what, the where. It is the why. It is the why that is confounding just because it's unusual to have this, obviously. Some people say it's unusual why we haven't had more. And maybe that's what they would be looking for. Do you think that they would, some inkling as to what made of all the people who were, and we've heard interviews with people who knew him, and though some say he was quiet, others said he was passionate about religion, and people who knew him well said he thought that his religion was incompatible with the United States. So I suppose people investigating this would want to know the why. Why did this guy, why him, why did he become radicalized? And maybe some answers to that are in the phone. I, I think you're exactly right. I think that's that's the question that keeps both investigators and, and uh, all of us you know, thinking about this case up at night is, you know, how does somebody who, by all accounts, was uh, was just a regular story of, a, of an immigrant coming to the country and fitting in 
He was working as a health inspector for the county. How does somebody like that get to the point where they're ready to shed the blood of, of, of their, his coworkers? And what was the point? What was the message if there was one? You know, whether those answers lay on that phone or lie on that phone that they have now cracked into, you know, time will tell. And, but I think you're right. I think it's the why did this happen that, that people want to know. But as far as you know, are there any gaps in what he was doing that day that maybe the phone can answer? Were there any gaps in his overseas travel? Because I know that was part of it. Or have they laid that out pretty much? And certainly they're willing to look at whatever they could look at, but they don't have those big question marks. Yeah, the only big question mark as far as that, the, the day of the attack is this 18-minute window where, you know, the FBI has been successful in piecing together the whereabouts of Farouk and his wife for the time leading up to the attack and then for the hours after the attack until they were killed in the, in the wild shootout with police. But there is this 18-minute window that they are hoping to fill in. Whether that phone will help them do that is probably unlikely, given that the phone was found in Farouk's personal car, and the couple had rented a SUV for, the, uh, for carrying out the attack, and it's unlikely, or it seems unlikely, that, that the phone that they're now hacking into was with them on the day of the attack. So as far as being able to say where they were for that 18-minute window, it's unlikely. So this much-fought-over phone wasn't even, uh, it was unlikely that it was even touched by the perpetrator on the day of the attacks. That's my understanding, since uh, I have not heard any reports or talked to anybody who said that they went back to that Lexus, which Farouk drove. And so my understanding is that that phone was probably sitting in that car throughout the day. Joel, covering this story, this is my last question, but Joel, covering this story, is there anything that you want to know other than the huge lingering why? You know, that is it. The, the why is, is it. You know, there, there are sort of side stories. You know, this couple had a kid that they dropped off, uh, you know, a young toddler. They dropped off with, uh, with mom in the morning and said they were going to a, a doctor's appointment, I believe, and then they drove off to carry out this terrible attack. And I just, you know, I would love, you know, a few years down the road to check in with, with that little child and, and see, you know, what is life like for her. But really, I think it's, it's the why. Why did this happen? Yeah, well, maybe there are a lot of questions that can't be answered by an iPhone. Joel Rubin covers federal courts and federal agencies for the LA Times. Thank you very much, Joel. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. I recently did a move, and it wasn't just me moving. You know who else was moving? A couple of my friends. There was The Hollywood Reporter. There was The New Yorker. There was Teen Vogue. There was Girls Life. There was Martha Stewart living. Also Martha Stewart weddings. They were all moving into this old house. And by the way popular photography. So many magazines. I had a process. I put post-it notes in them. I cut out, I, I literally cut out the pages. My process is I get a big magazine chock-a-block with ads. I cut out the ads, cut them out with a scissor. Then I save the articles and then I tear out the articles once I read them. I make them lighter and lighter. But I'm transporting all these magazines and I'm saying, this is idiotic. The year is 2016. Ah, but then I say, I guess I could find a way to find all these old magazines that I wanted to read if I go hunt them down. No, no, there is a better way, even if you're not moving, if you just want to organize your life or get access to great magazines, including all those titles I read. It's called Texture. 
Texture has an app that lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anywhere, anytime, using your smartphone or tablet. You breeze through hundreds of magazines. You find articles that you didn't even know were there. And we have a special free trial offer for you. Texture is offering the listeners of The Gist a free trial where you go to texture.com slash gist. You will gain immediate entry into all the top magazines, including back issues, bonus video content. So organize your life, expose yourself to the best magazines. Get on top of Texture right now at texture.com slash gist. And now the spiel, hijack my heart. We hear of a hijacking and we gulp. But how today's hijacking played out was kind of relieving, and given the tension that was released, kind of adorable. I mean, Saif Eldin Mustafa, that guy put the hijinks back in hijacking. I like this hijacker. Okay, look, of course, compared to 99.999% of humanity, he's horrible scum who deserves to rot in jail. But judge against the expectations of when you hear the word hijacking, that is a huge release of tension to see this 'er ne'er-do-well who had wrapped himself in some sort of elaborate truss that fooled the air staff. He's a veritable explosive belt of hilarity. Because you hear hijacking, what do you expect? Bombs, bodies, blood. Although hijacking, as opposed to suicide bombing, or even bombing of an airliner, it really is a hijacking is more of a gentleman's crime, a dapper throwback Don Draper-esque crime. We expected the worst. What we got was Cypriot President Nikos Anastasiadis telling everyone that he wasn't a terrorist. It's, in any case, it's not uh, something which has to do with terrorism. And then the president was asked, is it true there was a woman involved? And the president, who just had a hijacked plane diverted to his country, joked, Always there is a woman in the room. <laughs> that is always a woman. Sexist. Kind of true, though. Even the real terrorists. I mean, maybe if you let those guys have a little sex, all those virgins in the afterlife, less of an incentive. Anyway, we joke because, as with so many things, we take our etiquette cues from Nikos Anastasiadis, but also because... It's all judged against expectations, right? We expected carnage. We got kooky. So this is why I give this advice to you in your own life. If you have shocking and potentially upsetting news, you should preface it with an expectation of something that's even worse. Okay, here's an example. Let's say you want to be a dancer. You're a young kid. It's your passion to dance. But your dad's a coal miner and his dad's a coal miner and he doesn't think dance is a suitable profession. So what you say is, dad, I have something to tell you. What is it, son? I'm addicted to drugs. No, son. It's true. And my drug of choice is the ballet. It's a huge relief. The tension is released. Go, son. Go, son. Dance. And when they say the name Billy Elliot, may they remember you. Though, not make a movie about you because we didn't have the requisite conflict, which is at the root of all drama judged against expectations, right? This is why some people are convincing themselves that the sound of President Cruz is a sound they can live with because it's against expectations. Now, this works the other way too, right? Like if I told you that U.S. government scientists have proved that ISIS fading away, you would say, oh, good. Well, let me finish about ISIS. Yes, ISIS. Ice is melting at a record pace. The amount of sea ice in the Arctic hit a record low this winter. Ice is in terrible shape. Ice is going away, just as ISIS is gaining strength. By the way, did you hear that part about the worst year ever? Well, I looked it up. 2011, 
Arctic ice hits near record low. 2012, astonishing Arctic ice melt sets new record. And this year, you heard in that report, it was a new record beating last year's record. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I have a theory about this record. Let's say it's a warm day. It's noon, and you've made yourself a Tom Collins on the rocks. You set it on the picnic table. At one, that Tom Collins will be pretty melty. At two, it will set a new record for meltiness. And at three, my God, we've shattered all ice-melting records. But how do they know this? Sea ice measurements are compiled by the National Snow and Ice Data Center and by NASA. Wow, the National Snow and Ice Data Center. It seems like a fascinating place to work, although they never get a snow day. That is a problem. But they do so much fascinating work day in and day out. Yup, you got to check the ice. Yup, it's still melting. Yup, you got to check the snow. All right, advisory, don't eat the yellow stuff. Then there's their ongoing painstaking process to determine if it's really true that no two snowflakes are alike, which was made possible by a generous grant from the Helena Rubinstein Foundation, but not the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, because that supports creative people, effective institutions, and a more verdant world. And those verdant fetishists, they're the enemy of the snow people. I could just imagine some young buck showing up for his first day at the National Snow and Ice Data Center. And he said, you know, know, guys, guys, just new here. I'm just spitballing, just snowballing. He'd say that to try to get on their good side. It wouldn't work. Just snowballing here. But what about hail? You guys ever think to study hail? And then the grizzled old vet would turn to the kid and say, hail. All you young hotshots think you could come in here and sell us on hell. Well, you can't. Hell is not in our mission. Hell's not what we do. I'm a snowman through and through. Jim, Jim there, he's an ice man. Casey, Kelly, Felipe, snowman, snowman, ice woman. And so ends my imagining of life at the Snow and Ice Data Center, where they're still busy calculating what really is a snowball's chance in hell. I bet you didn't expect any of that, but were perhaps delighted as judged against expectations. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzia certainly hijacked this conversation. Executive producer of Slate Podcast Steve Lichtai made his fortune hijacking rum runners out of Canada. But now he's trying to go all legit, see? Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, hijacked a low-jack delivery truck, and he found he couldn't unload the stuff for pennies on the dollar. The gist, I once played Omaha high-low at a Miami high-lie fronton while high on highballs. That's close enough, right? Umpur de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>